1: also wanted them to be able to understand that Jesus Christ, if you do sin, still he remains as our advocate before the Father. Now that's awesome there. When you do, hey, I'm writing these things that you would not sin, but if you do, don't forget, you've got an advocate. It's not that the advocate says, whoop, you blew it. I'm not representing you anymore. No, he knows the weaknesses of our flesh. He knows where we're at. The advocate is the one that speaks For us, for our benefit, he is in essence our own personal defense attorney.
0: As a believer, you will face a battle with sin until this life is over. You will begin to sin less as you grow in your faith because God is sanctifying you, but you'll never be sinless. John challenged his readers not to sin, but knowing everyone would sin, he reminded them of the hope and of the perfect advocate, Jesus. Jesus knows you'll sin, but offered himself in your place taking the judgment you deserved. Pastor David encourages you to recognize your own sin, confess it, but not to feel condemned by it. Press to Jesus and his forgiveness. And here's Pastor David in the book of 1 John chapter 2 as he continues his message, More Than an Advocate.
1: What Jesus, in essence, was speaking is, you're already clean. I'm going to wash your feet, and on the physical sense, you can understand. That. You've been out in the world. You might have got it all cleaned up this morning, you know, uh, ready for the day. But you've been out in the world, and if you know in that Middle Eastern culture, they've got open sandals and they're walking along. And after a day of walking around in the Middle East like that, you, you've got to get your feet clean. In a spiritual sense, you and I can be clean before the Lord. Well, we spend a day or two out in the world. doesn't mean that we are no longer cleansed, but there's just some areas that need to be brought before the Lord. And that's what John is trying to bring to us. I believe, give to us that understanding. Yeah, you need to confess your sin. Your sin is forgiven, but you need to confess the sin. We are cleansed but we need to continually receive his cleansing work in our lives because ultimate sanctification is not available in this life. And that leads us to that third stage of sanctification, that of ultimate sanctification, or as some call it, prospective, what's yet to be sanctification. When it last this flesh is laid aside. When this Corruptible puts on incorruption, when this mortal puts on immortality. That's when now we have reached ultimate sanctification because we're with Him. We're no longer walking this terra firma. We're no longer carrying around this tent. We've laid these things aside. We're with Him. That's when that comes about. These three stages of sanctification, positional, we are, we always will be because of our faith in Jesus Christ the progressive sanctification as we continue to walk and move within this world as the Lord continues to teach us, reveal to us his truth, and we continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then that final, that ultimate or prospective sanctification. Each one of those are laid out in the scripture. Each one of them is a true stage in life of Every believer, every one of us as a believer are going through those stages. We've yet to receive that third stage. But again, as we're living this life, we're working through that progressive sanctification. And as such, there will be times when we fall. That's not an encouragement to go out and look for those times. What that is is just the reality. So that when the enemy jumps your bones, that you can say, but I'm still his child. His love for me does not fail. Solomon understood that when he wrote to us in Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse 20. He says, for there's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Not a single one. Even James, the brother of the Lord, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he writes to us in James three, verse two. We all stumble in many things. And James here is in agreement with John writing here in verse 10 that, hey, we got to confess our sin. If we say we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't us. The apostle Paul, he tells the church in Philippi, he says, I'm not already perfected is what he says in chapter 3 in verse 12. and He goes on the next verse. He says, brethren, I don't count myself as to apprehended So he knows he continues to press on toward that high call he continues to grow in his life it's for that very reason that here in first john john warns us if we say that we've not sinned we deceive ourselves we make him a liar the word is not in us then as we move on into chapter 2 of first john We have really an awesome declaration of the purpose of his writing and a promise that's ours. And personally, I don't agree with the chapter break right there. Should have broke after verse 2 with verse 3 beginning chapter 2, but they didn't ask my opinion when they did that, and so you're stuck with it the way they are. First of all, John gives us that great purpose for writing this short letter. Look at verse 1. He says, my little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. John is writing here with that heart of a pastor, with a lot of compassion for those that he's writing to. He says, my little children, I don't want you to sin. That's why I'm writing this. I'm not just giving you an open door to sin. You should make it your goal not to sin. But if you fail in that, if you do sin, you need to understand that there is an advocate who is continually working for us, who stands before the Father, and it's even Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You can feel his compassion coming through this as he writes to them in this effort to strengthen their walk, to encourage them in the midst of it. And again, praying that they wouldn't fail, but offering them hope if they do fail. And again, it's not an excuse to sin. It's not even a hint of freedom in sin. When we sin, we are going against God. We are disobedient to him. We need to confess that. John clearly knows the damage sin brings in every relationship, horizontal and vertical. But he also wanted them to be able to understand that Jesus Christ, if you do sin, still he remains as our advocate before the Father. Now that's awesome there. When you do, hey, I'm writing these things that you would not sin, but if you do, don't forget, you've got an advocate. It's not that the advocate says, whoop, you blew it. I'm not representing you anymore. No, he knows the weaknesses of our flesh. He knows where we're at. The advocate is the one that speaks for us, for our benefit. He is, in essence, our own personal defense attorney. I love what Max Anders writes in reference to the work of the advocate. He says, the advocate speaks with extraordinary authority before the judge. He does this, however, because his defense for us is that he, our defense attorney, has already paid any price the judge could impose. The willingness of the judge to forego judgment is not based on the life of the one on trial, that's us, but rather on the merits of Jesus' sacrifice. And what a great, great blessing that is. Praise God, we have an advocate who pleads our case on his merit and not on ours. But, you know, Satan sometimes the accuser of the brethren. Ah, man, you're not worth it. You know, you're, you're scum. You messed up each time and blah, blah, blah. It's kind of like I said, I know, I know. That's why Jesus died for me. And then just leave him behind and keep pressing on into Jesus. Just keep pressing on in to Jesus. It is never on my merit but it's always on the merit of our advocate. I was thinking about this, actually, the merit of the advocate, and uh, the thought came into my mind, probably in about the simplest terms as possible, but that's kind of the way my brain works. I wrote it down so I could remember it all, so bear with me. It would be as if I went into the local grocery store and I stole a pint of chocolate milk. I wouldn't do that. But say I went into the store... And I stole just a small pint of chocolate milk. I knew I didn't have any way to purchase that chocolate milk. But I went back there out of the cooler, grabbed it, stole it. And I just walked around the store for a while. And I drank that chocolate milk while I was still in the store. I just drank it all. I enjoyed it to the very last single drop, emptied it. And then I looked for a place just to throw the empty carton. And then I started to walk out the store. And as I walked out the store, here were two individuals with finely ironed and pleated uh, uniforms with little badges and name tags on them, and there right next to them was the store manager, and in the store manager's hand was a video that showed me opening up the cooler, taking out the chocolate milk, walking all around the store, and drinking it to my heart's content because I didn't have any money to purchase what I, you know, I could say, hey, I'm sorry, man, I I forgot to pay for that. Let me pay for, I didn't have any money. And I couldn't give him the chocolate milk back. I already consumed it. So the guys with the the nice uh, uniforms, they arrested me. They put me in a jail cell. And there I awaited for my trial. As the trial date approached, I heard from some that my judge was a loving judge. He was gracious. Oh, he was kind. He was merciful. Maybe I can just get off with a warning. However, as I went into the courtroom, I saw that sitting on the prosecutor's side was the actual owner of the store. And it was the judge himself who owned the store. It turned out that I hadn't stolen from just anybody. I'd actually stolen from the judge. And so my heart sank. But then my defense attorney, he stood up before the judge. And at first, what he said made me very, very nervous. He said, yes, your honor, this man stole that small bottle of chocolate milk at a value of $1.98. Yes, sir, he consumed it completely to his own enjoyment without ever even intending to purchase it. As a matter of fact, he was fully aware that he was unable to pay for that chocolate milk, Your Honor. He truly is completely guilty without excuse. I thought to myself, but to my surprise, even my delight, my defense attorney wasn't finished. Your Honor, he is guilty, but I would like to step up into his place. I want to pay his penalty. Not only will I pay his penalty, but your honor, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I will repay you with the proceeds of all those cattle and all of their milk from now until eternity. On top of that, your honor, on those thousand hills, I actually grow orchards of some of the best and highest quality cocoa trees. And I'll give not only the proceeds of those trees, but even the trees themselves to you as payment. As a matter of fact, your honor, I will give all that I have to provide payment above and beyond what this man stole. Yes, sir, he is guilty, but I will pay more than the price needed to cover his wrong. If you will receive my payment. And when we consider the blood of Christ as compared to our sin, our sin is wretched, as vile as it is, yet the preciousness of the blood of Christ is so much greater. It's like comparing a little pint of chocolate milk with cattle on a thousand hills and orchards of cocoa trees. That's the very thought that I get when John gives us here in verse two. He he writes that, It's our very advocate, the one that's pleading our case. He is the propitiation for our sins. Look there in verse two. And he, speaking of the advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Propitiation. It's a great word, propitiation. Propitiation. Amazing word. It's a powerful word. Uh, within the action of propitiation, we're able to realize, we're able to fully experience both the holiness and the mercy of God at the very same time. We're able to understand and receive and have part of our life his righteousness as well as his grace. Propitiation brings together both his justice as well as his pardon. It's through the process of propitiation that God is not required to bypass his holiness. He's not required to sidestep his righteousness. He doesn't need to lay aside his justice in order to be able to still reveal his mercy, his grace, and his pardon. All of them work together at the same time because of what is called the propitiation. That word propitiation comes from another Greek word. It has the understanding of atonement, that act of making reconciliation, bringing together two that were separated, at one meant atonement, Uh, but it's much, much more than that. It also carries with it the understanding of expiating or making full payment on something in order to appease the one that was wronged or to correct the wrong, okay? But it's even more than that. And this is the exciting part. It carries with it actually a picture of the Old Testament Holy of Holies. There at the temple on the Day of Atonement, inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. There was a cover on top of that Ark of the Covenant, uh, that lid or that cover actually in what is called the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, that lid or that cover over the Holy of Holies is pretty much the same word as propitiation. The interesting thing about that that we need to understand, that there in the temple, the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies, a very sacred spot within the Holy of Holies, as I said, the Ark of the Covenant. That cover of the Ark of Covenant, we also call it the mercy seat. It's upon that seat that the high priest would come in and he would sprinkle then the blood of the sacrificial lamb on top of that lid. The name for it, same root word for propitiation. But here's the deal. Do you remember what's inside the Ark of the Covenant? Inside the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets of the law and Aaron's rod that budded. So what we see here, the word picture that we see in all of that is that God was giving Israel this picture that as he looked down from heaven into the Ark of the Covenant, he would see the law, the tablets, That Israel was guilty of breaking time and time and time and time again. Man, we go through the pages of the Old Testament, we say, yep, one more, oh, yep, again and again. And it just seemed like they never got it together. And so, as God looked down into the Ark of the Covenant, he would see that law. And, yep, absolutely, they are guilty. Aaron's rod that budded, he looked down and he would see that. And seeing that rod was a reminder or a symbol of the promises of God to Israel. The promises that he had given them. And yet he saw when he looked at that, that Israel completely disregarded, they counted as absolutely no value those promises. And in doing that, both in breaking the law and in disregarding the promises, they disregarded their relationship with him as their chosen people. And when God looked, they were guilty, guilty, guilty. Very evident. But then that one day of the year, on that day of atonement, that lamb that was sacrificed, the blood of the lamb then, the high priest, the only one, once a year, he would then go into that holy of holies after already making the requirements for himself as he goes in. And he goes in and he takes the blood of the lamb with hyssop and begins to sprinkle on the lid of the holy of holies, that propitiation that's there. He sprinkled on there the blood of the lamb. So here's the picture that God is giving Israel. When I look at the ark, The law and the promises that you've disregarded are looking at them through the blood of the lamb. Our advocate, he is our propitiation. What an awesome reality that is. That's the propitiation, all that was necessary, and even so much more, not only to cover our sin, but actually because he was the sacrifice He made full restitution, full restitution to be able to bring our relationship to the Father into right order, our fellowship with the Father into right order. All that was separated by our sin was brought back at one minute, atonement. John shares with us, he, the advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is our propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So once again, we see this this vast, overwhelming reach of God's love. The absolute abundance of the payment that was made on our behalf. But not for ours only, for God loved the world so much that he made it available to whosoever would call upon his name they have the opportunity of being sprinkled with that precious blood of the sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, our crucified, our risen savior, who now stands as our advocate so that when the father looks at us long before he sees our sin, it goes through the filter of the blood of the sacrificed lamb. Although this is a study on John's epistles, I want to close the study tonight actually with a blessing that the Apostle Paul wrote to God in his letter to the Ephesians. As a matter of fact, it's found in Ephesians chapter 1. And Because when I think of all that God has done for us, what can we do but bless his name and give him glory? Ephesians chapter 1, down in verse 3. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who did bless us in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. According as he did choose us in him before the foundation of the world for our being holy and unblemished before him in love, having foreordained us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, in which he did make us acceptable in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the remission of the trespasses according to the riches of his grace in which he did abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence having made known to us the secret of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in himself it's all about God and we are blessed to be a part of it
0: so glad we could be with you today as we opened God's Word and dove deeply into its goodness and truth. If you missed any part of today's message in John's epistles, we encourage you to catch up on our website, theopenword.com. There you'll be able to browse our library of audio as well as learn more about the ministry of the Open Word. We'd love to hear from you too and find out how God's working in your life. Please give us a call at 520-836-9676. When you call, be sure to let us know how we can be praying for you. That number again is 520-836-9676. Is social media part of your routine? Come like our Facebook page and keep up to date with all that's happening at The Open Word and Calvary Chapel Casa Grande. You'll find a link at our website, theopenword.com. As our time comes to a close today, Pastor David has a quick word
1: of encouragement to share with you. Oh yeah, thanks Chris. Any time you spend in God's Word is valuable, and I'd like to encourage you to do it as often as possible. By diving deeper into Scripture and letting it saturate your heart and mind, you'll be ready to take on your day as well as be prepared when the enemy attacks. If you're not sure where to start, you can begin by reading today's passage again or simply begin with the Gospel of Mark, a short and simple reading. If your heart is open to the Holy Spirit's direction, you can't go wrong. Hey, thanks for tuning in today, and I hope you'll join me again next time on The Open Word.